The world is a beautiful but challenging place to live. And let's face it, life hits hard sometimes. So if you find your hopes and dreams and mental well-being needs a boost, you're tuned in to the right podcast. Welcome to Inspire Us with your host, Jay Paul Nadeau, a former hostage negotiator turned motivational speaker and acclaimed author of Take Control of Your Life. And now, here's your host, Jay Paul Nadeau. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Inspire Us. My next guest will inspire you. She is a daughter, sister, friend, and advocate. She's also known to many as Kentucky's 2019 State Teacher of the Year. But her journey has been a very difficult one. As you will discover listening to her story, what you see on the outside is not always what's going on on the inside. Well, be prepared to be inspired by Jessica Duenas. Hello, Jessica, and welcome to Inspire Us. Thank you, Paul. Appreciate it. Appreciate the invite. Well, it's really nice to have you on. Um, you've got a remarkable story, and you were the 2019 Kentucky State Teacher of the Year. You are an advocate for equity, culturally responsive teaching, mental health, and addiction. Wow, you, uh, you've got uh, quite some accomplishments there. And I also see that you have a master's degree in teaching students with disabilities. You really do like to serve people, don't you? Yes, yes, and certainly sometimes almost to a detriment, which is a big part of my story too, and kind of having to come out of that and find the balance for myself, for my own health. Mm, what is Jessica's story? Where, you, tell, us, uh, tell us a little bit about yourself and, and how you came to be where you are now. Sure. So I was um, born and raised in Brooklyn, New York. I lived there basically until I was 27. I actually lived in the same house I was born in um, for all those years. I was born, I'm a first generation American. My father was a Cuban refugee and my mom is Costa Rican. She actually has moved back to Costa Rica since. Um, I was raised with my older sister, Sophia, and, you know, we had a very, very strict upbringing. My parents were adamant about us being successful in school because they were not. Um, my parents, neither one of them got through high school. Um, my father was practically illiterate. My mom was not. But for them, it was really, really important for us to go to school because I, they believed that all their struggles were rooted in the fact that they were not educated. And so they had to work so many, so much more so much more in order to make ends meet. And they didn't want us to have those same struggles. They wanted us to have access to a more comfortable life without having to work as hard. Mind you, I still believe we're working really hard. It just looks really different now. Um, so anyway, I was pretty bright in school, at least you know in a traditional manner where I would test well. So I was a really good test taker. Let me be, let me be more accurate. And since I was such a good test taker, I was able to get um, a scholarship to go to a private high school in Manhattan. And from there I started, I got into um, Barnard College, which is the part of Columbia University. That is also where my mental health struggles began. I don't know what was the trigger and I don't know if it was the chicken or the egg, um, but I was dealing with depressive tendencies. Now I have an actual diagnosis, which is bipolar disorder diagnosis, but back then, you know, I just didn't know what was going on. And so I also started to drink. And the tricky part there is that everybody, not everybody, but most people tend to drink in college. And a lot of college students have those really terrible drinking habits. And so it's really difficult to differentiate who is actually struggling and who is just being a stereotypical college student. And so basically from my freshman year onward, it was like this delicate balance of drinking because I felt bad, feeling bad because I was drinking. And so there was just this cycle that I still, to this day, I don't know which came first, whether it was my, mind you, addiction is a mental illness too, but to this day, I still don't know if it was my bipolar that came first or the drinking, I'll never know. And that's okay. I don't need to know. I just need to know how to live with it. So anyway, um, I tried to drop out of school because of my cycle of drinking and depression. And um, my mom insisted that I had to finish college. So I decided to work full-time as a secretary in the daytime. And I graduated from Hunter College. I always knew I wanted to teach since I was a kid. Like 
I, but you couldn't tell me anything else. There was nothing you could convince me that I could do. I knew that I could have done anything in the world, but I still wanted to teach. And I think it was really, my kindergarten teacher was just so inspiring. And I kind of wanted to be like her. She was really loving, but very firm. And I knew that she had, like, she had my back, so to speak. And I think I just wanted to pass that on to others. And so she just really motivated me. And my high school teachers were pretty inspiring too. So anyway, um, fast forward to high, I mean, college graduation, I got into the New York City Teaching Fellows Program. And because I struggled in school just to graduate from college, I picked the fastest major to get the degree. So I picked a history degree. And at that time, I was like, I don't know that I want to teach social studies or history, but you know, I was just trying to get into the field no matter what. And special education was presented to me as an option. I, at first, I had no idea what that would even look like because my experience in education, I never struggled academically and I didn't struggle behaviorally. So for me to think about like the areas of disabilities that students get categorized under, so to speak, mm -hmm. I, it was just completely brand new to me. But once I started to get into teaching and I realized that special education leads to smaller teacher-student ratios and you get these really strong relationships because you don't teach that many students and you get to know them so well, I fell in love for real. So it was like mm -hmm. my kindergarten dream actually was taking off. And the great thing also about teaching special ed is that you don't have to be stuck in any one subject area. So you can, some years you're doing language arts, some years you're doing math, um, essentially you're taking the curriculum and modifying it to meet the students' needs. And so, you know, for years consistently, year after year, I just built these relationships with students that I still keep in touch with. Um, mm. Some of my former students are in their mid twenties. And I mean, I see them on Facebook, they're having kids and getting married. And I'm like, geez, they're already doing stuff I have not done yet. So, you know, it's been, a great foundation of building these lifelong relationships. And to like, while all this is happening professionally in the background, there's me drinking all the time and my drinking getting worse. And so like in college, what it looked like was that binge party drinking, right? right. That's what it looked like on often. Then once I be went into the professional field, it was the happy hours. I was started teaching with the whole cohort of like brand new teachers straight out of college. We were all like 23, 22. So, you know, the happy hours on Thursdays and Fridays were common. So at that point it was still socially acceptable to drink, maybe drink a little too much. But then I started finding myself on my own wanting to drink more during the week to kind of take the edge off because I was pouring everything into work. I felt so drained by the end of the day that I wanted kind of like a little nightcap. Mm -hmm. And so that was starting to happen. But at the same time, I was also in a relationship that led to getting married. And he was very particular about my drinking. He did not like it when I drank a lot. So then my drinking, again, while my career is taking off, my drinking is taking off in its own way, where it starts to become a genuine secret. And at that point, it's I'm feeling shame. Mm -hmm. I'm feeling guilt. I am diving every day more at work because I feel like that's the only way that I could validate myself as a decent human being. I was tying my entire identity to my work. And again, I can't even count how many lives I've touched. I, again, I love every single student that I have taught and I have loved the relationships that I've built and everything that I've learned from kids about just being kind and being gentle and being aware of all these situations and not assuming anything of anybody, I wouldn't change any of it for the world. But I also do feel like a big part of what fueled me is the guilt with drinking and also with bipolar disorder for those who may not be too aware, there's two different like phases of it. There's manic phases and then there's depressive phases. So when someone is manic, they don't really need to sleep much, not, that everybody fits the same mold. But for me, what it looks like is I don't need to sleep much. I can produce a great amount of work. Um, probably some of my most talented moments in terms of creating anything, whether it was a lesson plan or writing or just any production of anything that required creative thought probably happened in a manic phase for me. And so that kind of worked really well for teaching because I would have these amazing lesson plans and just you know, everything just looks so amazing on the outside. But then I would also have the crashing moments where I would be really, really depressed and then drink more to like deal with the depression part. So, you know, it was always so complicated. And um, basically this just went on for years. And once I got divorced, it just took off in terms of 
me just completely submitting myself and letting the drink take over me. I was depressed because, you know, my marriage didn't work. I was depressed because I ended up with like nothing. I didn't have a house to show. I was starting over financially, everything. Mm. And um, somehow the teaching still continued. Mm. And I just, I worked so hard that within a year of my divorce, I was starting to drink about a fifth of alcohol a day. And I was named the Kentucky State Teacher of the Year. And I very, very vividly remember being at that ceremony and I was going through withdrawals um, and I could not wait for the ceremony to be over so that I could go home and drink. Uh-huh. It was terrible. I had, I did not enjoy that ceremony at all because I felt so sick. You know, I, I just remember I was shaking, I was sweating and I remember I was smiling, but like even my smile was twitching because when you withdraw, you go into shakes wow. and it was really bad. And I just remember being in disbelief and it just goes to show, you know, like some of the most talented people can also have some of the greatest challenges. And we see that often in terms of say celebrities who we later find out have addiction problems or serious serious mental health issues. And um, I did get teacher of the year pretty much as my alcoholism was getting a lot worse. And, you know, I didn't have the bipolar diagnosis. So I just thought I was depressed and I wasn't taking medication. So like everything chemically in my brain was out of whack. And I was just kind of like on this spiral. So with teacher of the year, I was named, it's weird how Kentucky does it. So I was named in May of 2018, the 2019 state teacher of the year. So I knew in May that I was going to represent the state nationally starting January of 2019. Right. And I was really excited, except then there was suddenly a lot of pressure and it suddenly was, you know, all eyes on me in terms of what I'm doing. Um, like, it's just, <laughs> I started to break. I completely started to break apart. Um, I remember in January, I went to meet the cohort. So I flew to Google in California and I remember being really nervous if I was going to have a hotel room by myself or with other people. And it was because, you know, when we were done for the day, I wanted to isolate and drink. Mm-hmm. I remember I got to Google with um, a black eye and it was because I had blacked out like days before going to Google to meet all the state teachers of the year. And I don't remember how I got the black eye, but I did. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I show up to this event with all this makeup on so that you can't tell and you can just see that there's some red in my eye. And, you know, I felt like I was constantly making excuses for why I had these weird bruises, why, you know, I had a cut. I was constantly just lying and it felt so horrible. I felt just trapped. Um, So that happened and that was only like February, I think, January, February of 2019. Then as the year progressed, um, things just got more extreme. I remember um, in April when I decided to not meet the president Um, when all the teachers were invited to go to the White House, I chose not to meet the president due to, I mean, the treatment of children in camps, the lack of support for public education, Mm -hmm. just the way in which he conducts himself. You know, some people try to push back and say, well, you could have been there and had a dialogue with him. The man was not having any dialogue with anyone. And we've already seen how he treats people who think differently from him. So I was not going to have that. I was not going to be given that platform to speak to him. And so I refused to meet him. And then from there, it was like this pouring of both really positive support, but also a lot of like trolling. And so while I was getting a lot of support and like beautiful cards and notes coming from like literally around the country, there was still lots of really hateful messages. And so I didn't expect that. And I remember that kind of like just throwing me completely off course where I kind of wanted to hide. And before I knew it, the summer came and summer was really difficult for me of 2019 because I really didn't have much to do. I had like one event to go to for teachers of the year, um, but I wanted to isolate and I didn't wanna go see my family. I didn't wanna go do anything. And so that is where my drinking got really, I mean, I keep saying that's where my drinking got really bad. <laughs> I, you know, it's just like- it But there's an escalation work. happening here. There's really it, an escalation. Yeah, yeah. And it's just like, it does get worse. And there's, um, 
anybody who like is into research about addiction, there is something called like the jelly neck or the gel neck model. And it literally shows the progression of any addiction and how you get to the bottom and then you turn around and start to come back up. And so my, my decline was just incredible. And so that summer I drank so much and I remember I did have a physical and I forced myself to go to my physical and the blab work came back that my liver enzymes were completely off. And that doctor, mind you, I thought that she would have told me, maybe you need to get sober. She just told me, you know, try to cut down on alcohol via like a, an email, not even like you need to come oh. in. Let's talk about your alcohol consumption. Do you need to go to a treatment facility? None of that. And so I lost a lot of weight. I was like, I was looking pretty sick. And I remember when I got, I thought I looked sick. Not everybody thought that yeah. because of, you know, societal standards about beauty. Yeah. And so when I got back to work, people were like, wow, what did you do to lose weight? And yeah. I, you know, I was just like, oh Lord, if yeah. I really told them that would be something. Um, but anyway, my, I started to get so sick that I felt paranoia all the time. And I had a few moments when I started to even hallucinate. And that was like it for me. I literally could not get out of bed one day in September. And so I called in sick and then I was trying to like get it together, so to speak. The next day I could not get out of bed. And so I decided then and there that I was, I needed to get into recovery. And so I checked myself into a um, treatment facility in Louisville and I spent a week there and I got sober. And that's when I joined, you know, I, that's when I started my journey in terms of recovery, because I literally, I could feel myself dying. I was losing weight. I was vomiting all the time, vomiting bile. I could not hold any food down. I was losing weight quickly and I could barely function at school. There were times that I almost fainted. There were times that I would have to get coverage so I could go to the bathroom and just throw up anything that whatever was in my stomach, I was falling apart. And so um, luckily I was able to get sober from going to the hospital and everything was going well until I made the mistake once again to isolate during winter break. And after a few days of just being by myself, I ended up relapsing, mm. um, which I mean, you know, it, it happens, relapse happens to a lot of people. It doesn't have to be a part of people's recovery story, but it is a big part of mine, unfortunately. Mm. And so I went back to the facility and I spent the rest of my winter break there. Mm. And ironically, then when I come out, my district is naming me the recipient of the compassion award, a core value of compassion, because, um, what I forgot to mention is that I chose not to take the year off. I chose to reject the sabbatical so that I could get the money that I would have earned and give it to my school so that my students could go to Washington DC um, for free. And so that did happen in 2019. I forgot about that to mention mm. that. Um, that's a big positive. That is a <laughs> and big positive. Yeah, and it motivated um, the community so much that we went from covering the 28 students that my grant was able to pay for um, to covering the entire grade. So it went from 28 students for DC for about three or four days to 150 students for free to DC for about three to four days, which was beautiful. You know, I didn't realize that um, I could move, make such a movement happen, you know, like, yeah. and so again, it's overwhelming when you realize how much influence you can have but then you're feeling the shame of like your dark secret you know and only a handful of people knew what I was struggling with and um I remember in it was probably in January or so I did get into an argument with a friend and this friend um has a, a decent amount of following a decent following in terms of like social media and just in general and this person so frustrated with me threatened to out me on Twitter and I immediately was frozen and terrified and paralyzed. And I just didn't know what to do. And so honestly, I just stopped talking to that person because I didn't even know how to react. And then every day for a long time, I was hoping and praying that they would not out me because I was not yet ready. At that time, in my terms of my recovery, I just finally accepted that I needed therapy. And with my therapist, I was just terrified to tell anyone. And, you know, he, we would have sessions and he's like, well, why don't you tell your family? And I would say, well, you know, my mom is older and I don't want her to spend her golden years worrying about me. And I was like, and she doesn't even live in the U S anyway. So she doesn't have to deal with my drinking. And I kept coming up with all these excuses as to why I could not say who I really was. 
or at least this part of myself. I mean, I'm not just alcoholic. There's tons of other <laughs> parts of me too. Yeah. Um, but at that point I was terrified of being honest. You know, the truth scared me and I genuinely believed that I would be fully rejected. And at around that same time, I was also dating someone in recovery and we were supporting each other throughout the start of 2020. But then COVID came and COVID hit the whole community in recovery. It hit us hard. Anybody who suffers from addiction, I would say, could feel the effects of COVID beyond the work, beyond the quarantine, beyond all of that. Because for our support groups that we might go to meetings for, those were shut down for a while around the country. And then we were suddenly faced with Zoom meetings and where when we were used to going and sharing our heart and bearing our heart and soul and then getting a hug or going to get a meal or going to get a cup of coffee or just having a friend visit, that was totally stripped from us. And for someone in addiction who is trying to recover, routines are really important. Predictability for the most part is really important just to keep us emotionally steady. And things just started to get gloomy. Initially, I was excited to have a couple of weeks off from work because that's the way it was kind of, I don't want to say COVID, that's how it was marketed, but basically that is how it was presented to us at the time, right? Like let's stay home for two or three weeks and this will blow over and then we can go back to normal. And so I was excited to spend time with him and I was excited to be home and get to catch up on work and get some activity, do some cooking, order takeout, you know, just kind of enjoy a staycation. But once the staycation was never going away, it started to really affect us. And I could tell that he was getting down on himself a little bit. He was a super social creature. Like he loved people and he loved interacting with everyone. And um, he was wrapping up his degree in social work and he wanted to work with kids. And, you know, I love that because I love kids and I work with kids and, you know, he got to meet some of my students. And then just one day um, he, we were supposed to have like a, you know, a quarantine date night. And he said he was going to run to the store. And um, I was like, okay, I didn't think twice about it because he always ran and errands and such. Um, But he didn't come home and he was always really communicative. So, you know, I called, he didn't answer. I called again, he didn't answer. And he still had his apartment that he hadn't like turned the keys over to his landlord yet. So I was like, let me just go there. Like, I just had this feeling, this intuitive feeling. And so I followed it and um, he was there and he was using, he was using drugs and, um, he was so ashamed. I mean, you know, like if I felt ashamed, he was heartbroken and you can tell just, he was just devastated that he had had a relapse. And there's so much shame that happens with us when we fall down, especially because sometimes our own, like people in the recovery community can sometimes be so hard on people who recover. Like, I'm really glad for the people who get it right the first time, but for a lot of us, we don't. And it's, it's a journey that's not linear. Mm-hmm. And um, I think he was worried that I was going to be hard on him. And I was not, of course. And so, but I didn't know what to do. So his drug of choice was heroin. And I had never been exposed to that because I'm alcoholic, like legitimately just alcohol. Mm-hmm. And I didn't know what to do with him. So I just, I brought him home. I did a lot of Googling while he was like dozing off. I made sure that he wasn't like overdose, like, you know, right. he just went to sleep yeah. and I did a lot of Googling when about behaviors and such. So, you know, I took away the keys to the house and I hid his car keys because I didn't want him to like drive around and have an accident. And then by the next day when he sobered up, I was like, you need to go get help. And he said he was going to, and again, you try with adults, we can't control other people. That's one big lesson I've learned. And so I wasn't going to be like, I need to see you go to the hospital. So he said that he was going to go. And it was again, like he came back, but he came back acting very strangely and because he had used. And then that night I told him that he was going to need to like go get help or he was going to have to leave. And he said that he was going to go get help. And then I got on a zoom meeting And probably one of the scariest moments that I ever had was I was on the Zoom meeting. So, you know, kind of like how you and I are talking and I'm looking at myself on the screen and I see him walking up and then he just collapses. 
And I just immediately shut the computer screen. I'm like, oh Lord, everybody just saw that. But you know, I like run and I pick him up. Well, try to pick him up. Um, He and I weigh about the same. So he was difficult to move. And I looked at his eyes and the the pupils were like tiny and his breathing was slowing down. So I called 911. And of course, you know, I happen to live in a low income neighborhood where I feel like they respond a lot slower to 911 calls. So I had to call 911 a second time and say, someone is probably overdosing in my home. You have to come here immediately. So they do, you know, I like keep him up and I keep like shaking him to keep him awake. Mm -hmm. And they took him, they Narcaned him. But again, once a drug or a drink can get in a person with addiction problems, you know, their power of choice is practically removed. They, they're not themselves anymore. And oftentimes that's what people don't understand. It's like, that is a part of the nature of the disease that once, if we fall, our behaviors, not to excuse them, because obviously there's always consequences to everything we do, but it, that's not our true self. And it's the part of us that wants to continue feeding that craving. And so anyway, he left the hospital and he came back and I, I said, you have to go. Like I, I told him, I was like, when the morning comes, you're going to have to pack your stuff and you're going to have to go. And the morning, you know, he cried a lot. And in the morning I was crying too. He packed his things and he said, oh, I'm going to run to the gas station first. And then I'll come get all my things and go and I'll go. And, you know, he gave me a big hug. And we said, okay, I love you. I'll see you in a little bit. And he never came back. And this time I had the same sick feeling, but it felt just weird. Cause I got like a missed call, but the voicemail didn't say anything. It was just like white noise. I still have that voicemail too. And I had a text from him and he said, I swear I'm not high. I promise. And he's like, I love you. And I was like, okay. And I went back to the apartment, same routine as the first time. And I knocked no answer. I banged no answer. I called his phone. It was in there ringing. So I was like, okay, he's in here. So I started banging again and there was no response. And at that point I started to panic because the first time he did like come to when he heard me and came to the door and this time I wasn't hearing anything. So I went and I grabbed the fire extinguisher and I started banging the apartment door with it. And a neighbor came out and he called the police on me which honestly he helped because at least he called 911. I was so panicked that I wasn't even thinking about like calling 911. So in a sense, that was good, except that then of course, you know, I hear him on the phone, like, oh, there's a tall black woman banging and trying to get into this apartment. And I remember being like, oh, great, that's going to make this better. But like, I thought that and then immediately left my mind. And I was just trying to get in to see him. And um, the police, they did come quickly. They did pin me up against the wall because, you know, I was being hysterical. I was like inconsolable because I felt like I already knew. Right. And so once they got the apartment door open, as soon as they walk in, they say, they said something along the lines of, you know, it's such a blur at this point, but it was like, you know, there's a deceased person oh, down no. no, and no. yeah. And so he was gone. And I, I just remember first I started like yelling and cursing out the guy that called the cops on me <laughs> right. because I mean, because of the fact that like he apparently had was like um, a neighbor, but he also had like a master key. So he worked for the building owner. And he wouldn't open the apartment door, even though I was telling him that like he was sick in there and there was something wrong. Um, So then I had to call his mom um, Mm. and tell her to come because he had passed away. Mm. And then I had to call his brother and tell him the exact same thing. And, you know, I, I hope I never, ever have to tell another mother that her son has passed away, you know? Um, So anyway, after that, I mean, I went straight home and I drank, you know, I had already had a couple months sober, but I didn't have family to go to. I was in Louisville, Kentucky, and my family was here in Florida or outside the country. Um, So I was by myself and I went Mm -hmm. home and I drank. And I like, I literally, I just drink for days. You know, I don't even remember. I remember I called my principal And it was the craziest conversation. Thank God he already knew that I was in recovery. So it wasn't completely out of context. But, you know, I was like, my boyfriend just died of a drug overdose and I just found him. And I was like, Mm. I can't work tomorrow. (laughs) Mm. And he was like, okay. And then, you know, like my coworkers were trying to reach out, but like I was in such a fog. And eventually, um, I think it was my sponsor. Somebody came to my house and like found me passed out. So they took him to the hospital. So I had to go and do, go and do a detox. 
and you know um I got out of the hospital and immediately like went back to living by myself in that house full of ghosts and I you know fell again and back and forth um we got to at one point um my sister came to stay with me and you know I was okay until she left and immediately I fell and then um about a month he died on April 28th and on May 25th I um you know I was coming out of the binge and my sponsor wanted to take a walk so I was going to go meet her to take a walk. And I don't even remember how exactly I crashed my car, but I crashed my car oh, no. and I came to, the car was flipped upside down. Oh, no. um, I was hanging by the seatbelt. And I remember I was so in such a bad place. I was angry. I was so angry that I was okay. And when I told my sister that, you know, she started crying and she was just like, please go somewhere, please get help. Because mm-hmm. I mean, what mindset do you have to be in to get into a horrible wreck and be angry that you're fine? Mm. Um, So I checked myself into like a residential treatment facility that day. And I actually spent 35 days there and, you know, everything went really well. But, you know, this is a whole other conversation. But, you know, treatment facilities, residential ones, they don't prepare you to go back out and like live by yourself. You know, it's almost like it. Yeah, it's like drunk camp like everybody in there comes in we all come in higher drunk um after a few days we all start to feel better then we go to classes we have like therapy and groups and then um at the end of our stay it's like good luck and you just leave you know there's some people go to sober living but otherwise you know you're just back exactly in the same place so um probably the same day or the day after i left and again i did great in treatment but I got home and immediately I felt surrounded by ghosts and I felt hopeless. Mm-hmm. And I felt like all my fears were coming true that I would never fall in love again, that I would never get married, that I would never have a child, you know, all of that. Mm-hmm. And um, I can't even remember how many more times I was hospitalized. And so eventually it was, you know, my my boss actually came to my house and he was like, I think you need to go visit your sister. And he got me a plane ticket and um he took me to the airport and sent me off to my sister and that was in august and you know things got a lot better when once i came to florida i mean the goal was still for me to like go back to kentucky but you know we were thinking i just needed some time with family for some support so i stayed in florida for about a month and in september i went back and as soon as i got back boom i fell again and so i got back on a plane came back to florida Right. And um, at that point, you know, I accepted that I don't need to rush back to Kentucky. We were working remotely and I had been doing pretty well overall. Um, I did have one relapse here in Florida and I actually I went to a facility here for about a week. And actually there I was like, please totally evaluate me and everything. So that's where I got the proper diagnosis. And that's where I finally got like appropriate medications and set up with a new therapist. And um, so since then, and then I also decided while in that facility that I didn't want to go back to Kentucky because I was convinced that for, I mean, that house, but also just going back and not being with family, I just felt that to go back would be death. I remember Mm -hmm. one of the times before I went to the hospital, I remember I had been drinking and I felt so hopeless. I remember I Googled gun purchases and I was like, oh, well, we're in Kentucky. It should be so easy to find a gun. And so I did look up a place and they were open and I got in my car to go. And I had every intention of buying a gun and killing myself, every intention. But then I got into the car and I started to pull out. And then I realized I like, I was like, I'm too drunk to drive. I can't drive. And I was scared of hurting someone else. Right. And honestly, that was the only thing that kept me from like going. Wow. So I pulled like I pulled right back into my driveway and I came inside and I called a friend in um, in recovery. And I was like, I just, I must be really bad because I almost did this. And so she came over with a few other people. And um, that was actually, now that I'm thinking of the timeline, that was when I went back to Florida the second time because I was like, oh my gosh, I, I genuinely wanted to die. Um, so anyway, back, I'm sorry, I'm like in all over the place. No, but no, 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 <laughs> but I, I, I do want to stop you for just one moment. I yeah. want to do, I, I want to do an emotional check-in with you to see if you're okay. 
because you have just disclosed things. I see tears in your eyes and my heart is just pounding yeah. for you because you're, you're reliving this. And I, I, I don't want you to, if you, if you're oh. uncomfortable. No, I, I relive it every day. It's always mm -hmm. in my mind and in my heart. Um, sometimes I react with tears. Sometimes I am able to get through it. I think it's just depends on the day. Yeah. Um, but to cry is to be healthy. And yeah. I don't believe that tears are a sign of weakness at all. So no. I'm totally fine with it. <laughs> all right. I just wanted to check in with you because your um, story, oh my God, is just gripping my heart here. So yeah, no, absolutely. No problem. I what appreciate happened it. What next is, is what I'm asking. What happened next? Yeah. And so um, going back to my hospital stay here in Florida, I decided that if I went back to Kentucky, I was going to end up dying either through alcohol poisoning or intentionally killing myself. I mean, uh, in those hospital stays, I blew blood alcohol content levels of 0.4 and up, which is 40% of my blood in certain times was straight up alcohol. Wow. I don't even know how many times the legal limit that is, but if you were to compare it to other people, um, I should have been four. in a coma. Mm -hmm. I should have died a few times legitimately. And for whatever reason, maybe because my body was already so you know tolerant or whatever the case may be, um, I never did. I never went into a coma. I never had a seizure yet. I don't like to say I never will, but right. um, I was very fortunate. I, I had horrible detoxes because, you know, literally like half my body was freaking alcohol, right. but, um, I got through all those detoxes and it, again, horrible, horrible, horrible. Um, so anyway, I decided to not go back to Kentucky and I made the choice to resign and it was, I don't even know how to explain it. Like once I decided to resign, I felt the biggest weight off my shoulders. Um, like I didn't even want to wait till Christmas break to resign. I was like, I need to resign like in a month, you know? So I decided to resign. Um, and I gave them like a couple weeks notice and I was done. I realized that I was giving myself so much of myself to my career. I always had, I mean, I was this amazing teacher. I'm not going to lie. I was a mm. wonderful, amazing, talented teacher. I mean, there's a reason I won, you know, got the top ranking in the state. Exactly. Like, I was going to ask you about that. There's got to be a <laughs> lot of reasons why you yeah. would win such a prestigious award and you're, you're, students love you and you you kept in touch with them you supported them you you paid uh, their way to to washington you did all these wonderful things and yet you were battling with a mental illness and battling an addiction and still keeping together and i just don't know how you did it but thank god you did thank god you're yeah. here with a smile on your face right now wow <laughs> wow that yeah that, I can see that pressure being lifted off your shoulders because it's hard to carry on with with an addiction and try to make everything else work and dying inside, you know, every yes. day you're yes. dying inside. Yes, I 100% believe that I was slowly dying and yes. teaching, though I loved it, too much of my identity was being tied to it and the pressure of making sure that everything was done correctly, the pressure of making sure that I was being the best at my career was taking away from my ability to be my best to myself. And, you know, um, in terms of time outside of work, I would obsess over what the next day at work was going to look like, what I needed to prepare for work. And so really my day was, my day with regards to teaching wasn't just the scheduled hours in the classroom, it was, all the time, all my waking hours, especially the way my brain operates as a bipolar person, it doesn't mm -hmm. like to stop. Right. And so I was always fixating on what I needed to do and what I needed to do better. And to be able to cut that off really frees me to now just do whatever I want. I feel um, some people talk about being happy, joyous, and free once you are able to be sober. And I do truly feel that way, especially, like I said, once I let go of teaching. I never thought that my teaching career would end in 13 years. I thought I would do it until I retired. Mm -hmm. And who knows, I'm saying that and maybe I'll go back someday. But right now, if you ask me if I was going back, I would say absolutely not. Right. Um, also teaching got really difficult with COVID. I have so much love and respect for everybody who's still trudging because 
There's so much pressure. You have to document everything a million times more. You have to be able to defend how you are doing your best by every student, even when you are doing the best by every student. But there basically has to be like hard evidence all the time. And you should be prepped for people to be popping into your classroom from district level and administrators. And, you know, this is the first time that anybody in the world is doing this full time like this. And there's all this pressure to build this plan as it's flying. And again, I cannot recover from the grief. I cannot regain my sobriety while trying to be this really good teacher. And so I had to let it go so that I wouldn't have to go back to Kentucky so that I could focus on myself. And so right now I'm just working doing um, educational consultant work with a tutoring company. And it's a great, it's great for me right now in this phase of my recovery because I just show up. I consult and give my recommendations and then I'm done. I don't have to prepare anything. And so I get to spend my outside hours building a life that I don't want to run away from anymore. I don't need to escape with a bottle because I'm okay with what I'm dealing with today. I every day is really difficult sometimes. You know, it's like every day is a fresh slate. They say a day at a time because literally I, whatever I did to help my recovery yesterday doesn't guarantee that I'm going to want to stay sober today. And so every single day, it's working really hard to journal. For me, I am spiritual. So I do pray to a God of my own understanding. I do um, connect with people in support groups. I speak to someone, a sponsor who helps me because she knows, you know, she understands my situation. I talk to a therapist. I take medication. It's like a whole gambit of things that help keep me together. Um, I also, you know, get physical activity in and eat well, meditate. Um, you know, there's a lot of work to do to be a stable, steady, healthy person. And I couldn't do that teaching anymore. And so I had to make that choice. And I finally, for once, chose myself. And I almost wish I had done sooner, but I also think everything happens as it's supposed to be. So well, I, I applaud you for the decision that you made, uh, because that is a step to recovery, to leave something that was so stressful behind to care for yourself is a huge step because I know that you love your students and I know that you loved your career, but your story of struggle and of victory at the same time, it is that, that illness. You're on a high one day, you're on a low another day, and you're trying to deal with everything else and make everything work. But at the same time, you're neglecting the one thing, the one person that matters the most, and it's you, your mental wellness. And, and thank God you got diagnosed and you got the help yes. that you needed. Can you remember a time, Jessica, was there something or someone that kind of made you shift over to, I need to take care of me? Or was that something that you just came up on your own? Was it a person that said something? Was it, uh, was it just that you had reached the end of the line? What, what was it that got you to, to recovery? So what I would say, just getting to recovery, like deciding in the beginning, like, okay, I need to change things around. Um, it, was, it was honestly the moment when I realized that I was starting to hallucinate, I was like, oh my God, mm. <laughs> I think that was it because I remember like I looked it up and I mean, that was pretty much in my head. I was like, oh my gosh, I'm probably going to get cirrhosis soon. It wasn't enough to be told that my liver enzymes were bad, but once my sense of reality was genuinely getting distorted from withdrawing, that's when I knew, I always knew it was a problem. But I think I always had the, I've got this attitude, you know, I've got this, I can take care of this myself. And so I always would try and obviously fail. But I think once I saw that my sense of reality was getting distorted, once I felt that anxiety was truly gripping me, like I was so anxious that let's say if I was running the dryer and the dryer suddenly stopped or something with a zipper might've dinged in the dryer, Mm -hmm. it would genuinely cause a huge reaction like automatically in my body. Mm -hmm. And I just, I couldn't stand it anymore. Like I literally couldn't physically stand existing. I couldn't eat. I constantly was nauseous. I constantly felt sick. If I wasn't sick, I was shaking. You know, it was just, I just got to the end of it. And I was like, I can't keep living like this. I can't. And you know, that, that was it basically. No, because so many people didn't know because I was always hiding it. Right. Or, you know, 
like some people might say, well, how did, if you were so sick, how did you work? Um, so that's actually, that is a really good question that I never think about addressing. So at the time, that doctor that didn't really do a very good job of giving no, me a no. heads up. <laughs> the, old, the old email, hey, hey, you should, you should cut down on your drinking a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. Um, she actually had given me a prescription for a benzo. And I learned that if you take a benzo, it, it uh, holds off withdrawal symptoms. So I was able to not withdraw. You know, if I took the medicine, then I was able to do well and function perfectly until it wore off. And so that's how I would get through days. You know, like if I took medicine, then I was like steady enough to get through the day. And then immediately, as soon as it wore off, like I was always getting starting to get sick, like by the end of the day. So that's how I was able to not present as though I was ill in front of others. But if I didn't take it, I was completely, completely sick. And I actually think that was what happened. I think I ran out of the medication now that I'm thinking about it. Right. And so I was going full time into feeling sick and I couldn't handle it. Well, Jessica, that was one of the questions I was going to ask. How was it that you were able to fool so many people for so long when you were struggling with mental illness, with addiction and trying to make everybody's lives uh, that much better? And Thank you for answering that. And one point that you hit on that I think uh, I'd like to talk about is that denial, I've got this. And so many people think they've got, I've got this, I can, I can handle this, I can handle this, until they realize that they can't. And you did that self-examination on yourself and you realized that no, you couldn't handle it. And I applaud you again for that because I think a lot of people who deal with addiction they do feel the guilt, they do feel the shame, they try to balance their lives and their lives are not work, working out. And to be alone, especially to be disconnected from people, those hugs that you got from your students, you know, just, the, just the presence of other human beings. Uh, during COVID-19, it's been so difficult and a lot of people have turned to drinking in this, mm -hmm. in this period of time. Whereas they might not have been addicted before, I think we're gonna see a lot of addictions surface after COVID-19 and a lot of post-traumatic stress. What, what would you tell people who may be struggling with what you were struggling with? And I, and I don't think too many people are, are, are gonna be struggling with the level of stuff that you went through, the, ment you know, the, the bipolar condition, uh, undiagnosed, um, the alcohol addiction. I don't think too many people are going to get to that level, but what would you tell someone who may be struggling with drink um, right now? Uh, what kind of advice could you give some of our listeners who might be drinking far too much? I mean, the first thing I would say is you're not alone. You are so not alone. Mm. So many more people have drinking problems or addiction problems than they let on. Mm. So that's the first thing I would want them to understand. The other thing I would want them under to understand is that addiction does not discriminate. It does not care about morals. It does not care about socioeconomic status. Anybody from anywhere can have addiction as an illness. Because I remember for me, I associated it with poor character um, because the people in addiction in my family, unfortunately, never sought recovery. And so they hurt others. They hurt mm -hmm. themselves. Mm -hmm. They lived in very, they lived very dysfunctional lives up until the end or, you know, in jail, you know? Right. And yeah. so for me, when I think of addiction in my family, I think of, you know, jail, death, you know, nothing right. positive coming from it. And so I can see that happening also in other families, especially if a listener right now might have a relative in active addiction and they're kind of tearing the family apart. I can totally understand not wanting to kind of join us. Well, I'm also in that same boat, just maybe it doesn't look the same way. So what I would say, if you have an inkling that you have a problem and you know, if you do, that's the other thing I'm going to say, you know, if you have a problem, because yeah. if you're starting to question it, that means you have a problem and it's totally okay. And what I would say is there is no one way to do recovery. Everyone is an individual. I know what works for me. I need to be sober 100% of the time. I cannot moderate my drinking. If I try to just slow down to one, I become incredibly angry and frustrated and hateful. And I would rather not drink than have one drink because um, there's a saying that people say one is too many and a thousand is never enough. Wow. That is exactly how I feel with regards to drinking. Um, but if you feel that you have a problem, you sense it, 
get help now, at least look into resources. There's tons of them because it's not worth going down the spiral if you already can spot the issue now. It's not worth it. You can lose so much. I'm very fortunate that I was able to be in control of my narrative, right? Like I had the privilege of noticing that my drinking was taking control and that I could leave my job and find another job. Not everyone has that luxury. Some people lose their jobs. Mm -hmm. Some people get arrested. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm very fortunate in terms of my story where I have been able to avoid certain consequences, but that doesn't happen to everyone. And so when you do notice that you have a problem, be mindful that there's a lot of paths that your addiction can take you in. And sometimes it's not that you have the opportunity to share your story in a positive way. It can be that you end up hospitalized, dead, you kill somebody, mm-hmm. you know, and it doesn't mean anything about your character. It's just that that's where, that's the spiral that this disease can take. So if you have a sense that something's wrong, please go take care of yourself because it's not worth it. It's not, I promise. <laughs> well, Jessica, yeah, you're a living testament that you can get through this. And I read on your website, something I'd like to read out to our listeners right now. You said on your website, and I, I encourage everybody to check Jessica's uh, website out. I'll leave the link uh, in, the, uh, in the bio uh, on the website. Uh, you said, a day at a time, I choose to live a life of recovery, which empowers me to be of service to others. And that's just a, a beautiful sentiment that you you have been a such great service to so many people. You have touched lives. You've made a difference. And for you to crash your car, to back your car out in the street and think, I'm too, too drunk to buy a gun to kill myself. I, I think I might just go back inside and call somebody for help. <laughs> you're, you know, you're, you're a living testament that we can get through just about everything. Well, no, let me rephrase that. You're a living testament that we can get through everything. And I, I admire you so much and your journey. And I wish you continued success in this. So glad that you seem to be in a happy place right now. And there's joy. I can see your face and I'm, I wish <laughs> else could too, but you've got such a lovely smile and, and you've got this brilliance about you. And I, I saw the pictures of you with the student uh, and that's on the website as well. You've done a lot. You've done a lot. And thank you so much. Are there any parting thoughts before we, uh, we wrap this up? Any parting? Yes, because I, I just thought of this too. So I made mention about like that not everyone gets it right the first time. I want anyone also to understand that if you're struggling and you relapse a million times, it doesn't matter as long as you get back up and go. What I will say though, obviously, is that not everyone is able to recover from a relapse, right? Please remember my boyfriend. I loved him to death. He was an amazing person, but he did not get the opportunity to recover after his relapse. I have so far. So be mindful of that. But if you do relapse and you are okay to live from that relapse, don't give up on yourself. Don't let anybody else tell you anything, make you feel bad about yourself. You know what? Whatever. Pick yourself up, dust yourself off and keep going. Don't worry about other people. Your journey is yours. It's your life, your recovery. I love that. I absolutely love that. You remind me of Rocky who gets hit to the mat so many times. And what does he say? It doesn't matter how many times you get hit to, down. You, you, what's important is that you get back up. And thank you for sharing that inspirational story. You have inspired us here tonight, Jessica. And anybody who is struggling with this, listen to Jessica's words and just follow her lead because your story has it's incredible. And uh, it brought me to tears. So I'm so glad that I had this opportunity to to chat with you and that you're here to chat with that you're a living so human being on the other end, you know, like, geez, thank you so much for touching our hearts today and, and for inspiring us, Jessica. Thank you. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. You're welcome. Thanks for listening. Tune in next week for another insightful episode. If you haven't already, hit the subscribe button and leave your comments. For more information, check out our website at www.inspireus.ca. Remember, it's not what happens to us that matters most. It's how we respond to what happens to us that does. Stay strong and resilient. 